Amen, amen, amen. Well, you may be seated. Welcome again to Mercy Fellowship. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here. And here at Mercy Fellowship, we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And the biggest way that we do that is as we gather together on Sunday morning, if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're glad that you're here. But we just make it our habit, uh, for the most part, to just preach right through books of the Bible. To take books of the Bible, large sections of Scripture, and just walk through and let the, 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 the book of the Bible or the section of Scripture dictate the outline for what we're going to talk about um, each week. And so this week, we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, which uh, uh, was after chapter uh, 7. It's before chapter 9. Thank you. You can put that in your notes uh, if you need that. Um, and it's, it's just a challenging section of Scripture for us because of how it addresses how we engage with the topic that all of us love to talk about with church, and that's money. Awesome. You're like, this is my first week here. This is my last week here. So glad. I'll grab a mug on the way out, um, and, and that's awesome. So I just want to address that. That's why we do this. We're not, we're not preaching this sermon because we had a big break in and a bunch of stuff was taken. If you're like, the slides are weird, um, that's because we ordered a projector that wasn't the right one. And when I say we... This guy, right here, I should not be involved in tech, period. And so we're just making it through. God's providing for us. But if you have your Bibles, uh, I hope you do, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Um, and we're going to try to see some good news here. And so as you turn there, I want us to ask ourselves, how do you, or how do we respond in times of need, in times of want, in times of desire, or in times of desperation? Because let's be honest, we, we all need, we all have wants, we all, we all take, we all hold, we all give in some way, shape, or form, but, but most of us start in a very self-focused place. And so um, everything that we do is driven to be more concerned with ourselves than others. And so this really impacts how we interact with the material world around us. Because we believe that the very existence of the world that we're in exists so that we can enjoy, so that we can experience. I mean, whether we would never say this out loud likely, but we often act like the world revolves around us. And so hourly, daily, uh, we're, we're talking in our heads and, and, and we're talking about whatever situations that we're dealing with. Maybe it's relational and we're not usually like, I wonder how that other person saw this. No, we're, we're in our headspace. How, how did I see that? How did I experience it? When we think about want or, or need, we, we start with our wants and needs. Not like, oh man, I wonder who needs to be blessed today. Oh no, it's me. Yeah, I'm the one that needs to be blessed today, right? And so um, we start uh, and act in ways um, towards our own self-interest, our own self-benefit, and, and, and this happens in times particularly of great need, right? Like when, when, when things are tough and, and we've been in the, the year and a half or whatever now that we've been in, right? How does this situation impact me? Where is my provision how are we being taken care of? Or how am I taking care of our family? Or, or what's my situation or station? And that's not wrong, I mean, in, in, in all circumstances, but um, at times we have an orientation around ourselves uh, at the expense of how our actions can affect other people. And I think we tell ourselves, that, well, if I just had more, if I was in a place of abundance, then I'd be more generous than I think about other people. But that's not true either. Because when we have more, and that pressure's off on survival, we just start to think about, okay, well, what's, maybe what's next for me? What's next for my family? How can I bless um, you know, those maybe that are closest to me? Or how can I uh, enjoy? And so when we have much, we think most about how it's going to uh, influence our lives. And I think it's because we start with a place of believing that everything we possess or dare I say, everything that we've earned is ours. I don't mean ours, I mean mine. I worked those hours, I got that wage. Like, no, 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 I, 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 I got that, I was given this. I, 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 this is my town, this is my house. 
And that's okay, like, like don't, don't, don't tune me out and think we're going to start trending towards Christian communism, if you know me at all, that, that ain't where we're going uh, on this. Uh, and so, but there is an aspect that our desires are usually very immediate and temporary and selfish, and we forget that everything that we have um, it, it, that is ours is from the Lord. So nothing that we have, the very breath you breathe, the very heartbeat you have, is something that is yours alone or that you've earned or that you've achieved. And so we often desire immediate comfort over long-term correction. And so part of our challenge is that we think that we're going to find the most enjoyment from consuming. And man, there's, there's times that that's the case, right? I mean, um, just on Friday, uh, my wife made these chocolate chip uh, cookie brownie bar things that has eggs and gluten and everything, and I consumed it. It was glorious. And I'm not supposed to because I can't have eggs or gluten, but man, that was just a, a joy to consume. I, I paid for it later, but man, I just, I, I, I don't know, I might just, I might just fall off the wagon entirely on this stuff, guys. Okay, so um, the, the idea, though, getting back to it is, is that we think that consuming is going to be better than contributing. Because I, I believe we think that if we are, are contributing, somehow we're losing rather than gaining. And so um, we're going to see some things here that are counterintuitive. This is a long intro uh, to get into a challenging topic here. Um, but as we think about generosity, um, I want us to think in the aspect of courage. Because I think, I think generosity takes courage. It takes faith because um, it recognizes as an act of faith that it's not just relying on what can I see or what do I possess, but it shifts to who am I beholding? What or who am I worshiping? And where do I believe provision ultimately comes from? Do I believe that we have a God that is finite in resources, finite in ability to bless? And if that's the case, then I better hold on to it because if I, if I give up any of this piece of the pie, I'm getting less. We forget that our God's a creative and infinite God, that God's pie, if you will, is not limited. So you give away a slice, it doesn't mean those are all the slices that are left. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, where we're going to see this courage is birthed from being reoriented to see what we've been given and how we give. So 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians rather, chapter 8, verses 1 through, um, 1 through uh, 7 first says this, this is Paul writing to a church. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For the severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, verse four, begging us earnestly, for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started so that he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, or, or, or it could also translate uh, in our love for one another, see that you excel in this grace act of grace also. So this first part, one through seven, we're going to see how generosity plays itself actually not in prosperity, but in poverty. And so Paul's been commending the Corinthian church on their, on their growth as a church, in, in their church culture. Chapter seven, we saw that they, were, they had godly grief that led them to repentance, that led them to restoration of relationships. For the first seven chapters of 2 Corinthians, Paul's been hitting big ideas about the goodness of God, the gospel of grace, and how it plays itself out all the way into relationships. And we said, hey, we are complex and comprehensive people. So we even talked about how our, our bodies are, washed, are, are wasting away, but our minds are being renewed day by day to be transformed, not to what we see in the world, but to, to, to the image of Jesus Christ in us and through us. And we're like, yes and amen, we, we love that. Reconciliation relationships, forgiveness of sin, new life, eternity with God. By the way, how about your money? Oh, whoa, easy. 
Can we just talk about, I don't know, anything else but that? Let's talk about, can we do politics today? Can we do transgender issues? Can we talk about sexuality? Like, those would, those would be good. Can we talk about race? Nope. Money. And, and, and like, what, what is that? Like, why is that the off-top of lobby? We know part of why it is because, right, you get, you get preachers with, like, you know, big gold watches and gold thrones, uh, you know, up on TV, and they want you $1,000 so that, you know, your, your niece will get saved or maybe your cancer will get, like, okay, that is not, that, that is a wicked, demonic teaching that does not find its place in Scripture and the gospel of grace. But because we are comprehensive people, how we think, how we feel, how we live, how our bodies respond to different inputs, all matter to God. And that means how we use or spend or direct our time, talent, and treasure also matter to God because that's actually worship. We say the word worship, right? That's because we are assigning worth to something. And so for this church in Macedonia, or rather in, um, in Corinth, you know, he, he is comparing them, not comparing them, rather, but he's lifting up an example of what is going on in Macedonia. And so he's, he's not, he's not um, cajoling the Corinthians to try to raise the budget. He's, he's coaching them. Because Corinth is a very affluent city worldwide. They are known as an incredibly affluent city. And now, I know that Marysville, like Stevens Arlington, we're not Bellevue, we're not Medina. But we're not Wagadivia, Burkina Faso. We're not Honduras. We're not little towns in Mexico or, or even um, you know, other places you know, here in the US that have more poverty. He's writing to the affluent in the world. He's saying, hey, let me, let me let you know about how the church of God is responding to the needs of the people of God uh, around the region and around uh, the world. And so he's showing an example that is counterintuitive in nature on how God's economy works compared to the world's economy because our equation's pretty simple, right? We think about economics, personal economics. We think, okay, more money, good. More stuff, more security. Yeah, I mean, yeah, more ability to do things, maybe to invest more, to help a flourishing society, sure. But more stuff, yeah, we like that. More options, we for sure like that. And so if we've got more stuff, more security, more options, well, that means for sure we have less fear, um, less want. We absolutely have more joy and satisfaction, right? I mean, for sure, we are the most joyful, satisfied people in the world, right? Everybody in America? Right? And we've never, ever seen the examples, right, of the, the people who win the lottery or, or people who have, have, you know, just amazing, like, world-changing wealth that are, like, incredibly dissatisfied. No, because that's not all that there is. But I think even, even religiously we get into this place where we're like, well, you know, I follow Proverbs, and so I save, I give, I work, all these things. And so we, we believe that somehow the Lord always works in demonstrating material blessing. Oh, you have the favor from the Lord? That means you have material blessing. Oh, you're in poverty? Oh, you, you, you must not have God's favor. You must not have God's blessing. Or maybe you're just walking in sin. Maybe it's your fault. Maybe the system's against you. And so we, we try to address these things in all these different ways. And so uh, when we apply this to generosity and charity, we just assume that those who have been blessed the most are going to automatically be the most generous. Right? I mean, man, if you had the most stuff for sure, you're going to be the, the most open-handed, the most gracious, the most generous. And, and man, if you're, if you're in a tough spot financially, if things are tight for you, or, or you're not the richest, well, then, I mean, you're, you're not going to be generous. In fact, why would you be? You, you, you have so little. And then he brings up the churches in Macedonia. And we don't know Macedonia, but go ahead, think of West Africa. Go ahead, think of Honduras. Go ahead and think of, uh, of the more impoverished countries in the world. And that's what he's saying. He's not just saying, oh, yeah, you know, you, you know the, the church out in Darrington's uh, out giving the church in Medina. No, no, he's saying, hey, church here in America, let me tell you about how generous the church in West Africa is being. It is amazing how generous they are. And so, so th this example he gives breaks the mold. Why? Because he says, first of all, 
They are recipients of God's grace. It says right here in verse, verses 8, or chapter 8, right? He says, the, uh, uh, the Macedonian churches, they have the grace of God has been given to them. They are known and loved by God. They're saved by Jesus. Well, what are their circumstances? I mean, they're saved by Jesus. They're probably doing pretty well, right? You follow Jesus, your life's always going to go easy? No, no, he says, they have a severe test of affliction. That's not good. Anybody want to sign up for a severe test of affliction? No, no, you, nobody wants this. Well, what's their attitude? Because I can tell you what mine usually is. Not good. Affliction, not good. He says, no, their attitude is abundant joy. Well, again, maybe they're being provided for in miraculous ways, and they're just they're seeing that, and they're encouraged. No, because the severe test of affliction at least includes enduring extreme material poverty. I say material poverty because I think that's important to recognize. Because they have abundant joy. They have the grace of the Lord. And yet it says they have extreme material poverty. And, and so, I mean, what are their actions? Again, this is counterintuitive. It says they're overflowing with generosity. Despite their poverty, they're abundantly rich in joyful grace. They gave according to what they could. In fact, uh, Paul says, wow, we were, we were shocked. Like, I mean, we, we, they gave according to what they could, but, but they gave exceedingly beyond that. I mean, they were, they were, we were so surprised, so shocked. It was, it was noteworthy. I mean, it makes it into the Bible that he talks about how much they've been giving beyond their means. But all of it, because we always like, oh my gosh, that guy's so generous. I'm such a, I'm such just a, a turd, you know, like I'm just not very generous, right? And, and, and he's like, no, no, no. They gave specifically out of their desire. This is a key idea. They gave out of their desire to give. Their desire drove their discipline. We're hitting that a little bit more in just a moment. It says in verse 4 that they were begging for the, the word. The Greek word here is charis. It's where our daughter charis gets her name. It means favor or grace. They were begging for for favor and grace from the Lord? Like, are they begging, like, we're the poor church? Like, God bless us more? No, it says they were begging for the grace of God not to be the recipients of material blessing, but to be conduits of material blessing. They're saying, hey, we, we're, not, we're not praying for provision. I mean, I'm sure they, they, they did or could, but specifically, they're begging which we think of a, from poverty, right? You're in poverty, you're begging, and they're not begging for provision. They're begging to get to participate in how God is working in and through the world, in how God is working in the church to support the mission, yes, and to give relief to members who are in need. And so they want to see the gospel go forward. They want to see God's people provided for. And so what was happening at this time was there was a big collection that was being taken um, at, at all the churches across the known world to bless specifically um, the, the Christians uh, who grew up Jewish in Judea uh, because they were in, in Galilee. They're in Judea. It's a very poor, poor region. And there had been this massive famine. So it's already poor. Now they got a famine. Things are tough. Um, you know, Paul's touring around with Sarah McLaughlin. She's singing songs. Everybody's like, I want to give. Or like, they're at the Christian concert. And everybody's like, who wants a compassion, kid? You know, like, I'll sign up for 30 bucks a month, right? Like, okay, it wasn't quite like that. But what they were doing was highlighting at every church they went to, hey, we know that everybody's got their individual issues and challenges. Let us tell you about what's going on in Jerusalem. And people are saying, you know what? I want to give to support that. He says they gave first to the Lord and then to them. And so first I want to make sure that, that our church or, or the church that we're a part of is equipped well and, and that we're giving cheerfully, regularly, sacrificially there. And we want to bless or help provide for how God might provide relief to those other brothers and sisters in Christ in other parts of the world that, that are dealing with things that are difficult. And so... His team's sharing all this, and they're like, yeah, we want to participate. And, and, and they had done this when they visited Corinth, the wealthy church. And the Corinthian church says, yeah, we want to in on this too. And so they're like, hey, hey, uh, this is happening in Antioch. This is happening in Macedonia. Uh, this is happening maybe in Rome as well. Hey, Corinth, you guys want to get on the generosity train. And all the Corinthians who are really wealthy and everything, they're like, 
Yeah, absolutely. We totally want to help out with that. You know, it's like you're, you're watching, um, you know, something on, on Masterpiece Theater on PBS, and, and you're like, man, the only reason I get to watch this is because of viewers like you. And I'm like, well, I'm not one of those viewers that gives, but I'm sure thankful that Darlene does uh, because she pays for all the shows, if you don't know. Um, and so they're like, I want to participate. So they, they call up on the, like, pledge drive to help what's going on in Jerusalem. And they're like, yeah, put us down for like a pledge. Save the tote bag. We're good. I don't need the tote bag. I just want to help. And so now he's like, hey, remember how you said you wanted to help out with that? I'm just reminding you what you said you wanted to do. Well, see, he's not co uh, coaching, or rather, he's not cajoling, he's coaching. But this Macedonian church, this, this church in great poverty, is excelling at giving in any way uh, imaginable. And so the re result of grace that they've received is a heart that is exceedingly generous. He goes into greater detail on, on the what and the why here in verses 8 through 15. Please stick with me on this, guys. I know this is a challenging topic. He says this in verse 8. I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Verse nine, guys, bracket this, circle this, like, like highlight this in your Bible. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. Hold on to that, we're gonna hit that deep. Verse 10. And, and in this matter, I give my judgment. This is Paul to the church. This benefits you who a year ago decided not only to start this work, but also to desire to do it. Verse 11. Now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by your completing it out to what you have. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what a person doesn't have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that is a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need. So their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness, another word is equity or, or equal. As it is written, whoever gathered much has nothing left over, and whoever gathered little has no lack. And that's from Exodus 16, 18, this quote. So in this section, there's, there's four ideas I want us to hold on to on principles of the, the drive and help us understand generosity. And if we miss the first one, none of the other ones matter. The first one is this. Jesus gave generously so we can give. If we don't understand first how Jesus gave, all of this becomes meaningless. And so Paul starts off in verse 8. He says, hey, I'm not, I'm not commanding you to do anything. Nobody here is commanding us as Christians to do anything when it comes to giving in this regard. He's, he's saying this should be your, your compulsion. By compulsion, I mean desire should drive this. He says, now let me tell you what drove Jesus. It was a desire for you. Jesus Christ, in all of his wealth, we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that Jesus Christ has existed for eternity with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that Jesus was in the throne room of heaven and being sent by the Father on a rescue mission to those who are spiritually impoverished, which is all of us. That's what sin does. Sin spiritually impoverishes us. We become spiritual beggars. And Jesus says, I'm going to leave the throne of heaven. I'm going to empty myself and I'm going to arrive on the scene with limits. Comes in a human body, a male human born, right? That, we celebrate that at Christmas morning. Grows up, lives in obscurity. Like, like he grew up in Galilee, which is terrible. It was the poorest of the poor. He doesn't show up in Rome with great fanfare. He doesn't show up in Greece to be part of the cultural elites. He shows up in the most impoverished place to an impoverished family. Yes, they worked, but there was nothing about their family or their, their, their financial status that was impressive. Even how he carries out his ministry, I mean, Jesus and his people always ate because Jesus kind of had this thing with food that you could kind of 
you know, multiply it when, when they needed it, right? Um, so they never, you know, were starving. You know, all we have is water tonight, Jesus. The party in the, is kind of fading. He's like, okay, I, I can fix that. Party can keep going, right? But it says that the Son of Man doesn't have a place to rest his head. Jesus traveled around to these different communities, and he, and he wasn't like having a big headquarters, right? You know, big uh, palace just for him and his people. And so he comes to the poorest of the poor, in a poor part of the planet, and he experienced wilderness, exile, 40 days, right? No eating, no, no, no water, like, like Satan is tempting him. Everything about Jesus' life would be a significant downgrade from the throne room of heaven. Everything about it. Significant downgrade. And it says in Philippians, it says that he counted others as more highly, uh, that we should count others as more highly than ourselves because Jesus thought so highly of us. He valued us so much as people, it says that he emptied himself, coming in the form of, of a person, of, of a man. And that he lived out a life of, of obedience. Not, not one of like, okay, well, what am I here to experience? I want to know what it's like to be human, so let me do all the fun things. He's like, hey, I'm just here to do what dad told me to do. To heal, to preach, to teach, to forgive people of their sins. And ultimately, Jesus emptied himself, gave of himself, as a substitute and as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross. Yes, the Roman government is the one who nailed him up. Yes, it's the religious elites that, that put him there, but make no, no question about it. It was Jesus willingly going to the cross. Willingly. Out of Hebrews 12 says, for the joy set before him, despising the shame, despising our sin, Jesus endured the cross. He desired to do it. He desired to give. And he gave for a purpose. Everything that Jesus did was driven by desire. And this discipline took him to the cross, motivated by the great reward of purchasing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. I mean, what's amazing about Jesus giving, too, is he's not just like, well, I'm just going to give to this charity. I mean, do they, does, it, does it work? I don't know. They got good graphics. They got good stuff on Instagram, and maybe they... You know, yeah, 90% goes to the CEO. Whatever, I feel better. We got the hashtag. They sent me a shirt. No, Jesus, when he gave, gave in a way that was so effective that he actually purchased people who were enslaved to sin. I'm going to give my life. We have my body broken, my blood shed, so that sinners who are enslaved, who are in exile, who are orphans, I'm purchasing you. You're no longer owned by your sin. You're not under condemnation. You have new life. You're a citizen in God's kingdom. You're, in the eyes of the Lord, a saint. Not yet perfect, but, but you're no longer seen as sinner. You're seen as saint. And then now, you are brothers and sisters in Christ because you've been adopted into the family as sons and daughters of the king. You used to be spiritual debtors. Now, because of the work of Jesus in our place, we have an eternal inheritance. I mean, imagine having large quantities of debt, which most of us don't have to imagine. If you own a home, you're already there, right? If you don't, like student loans, whatever, we are an incredibly indebted society. And imagine going from in debt, insurmountable debt, to heir to the kingdom of God in eternity. You wouldn't worry about that debt much anymore, would you? No, because it's paid for. When Jesus went to the cross, he says, Jesus paid it all. He took our poverty of sin on the cross, paid our debt, and then, and then we talked about the great exchange in 2 Corinthians 5 where, where he took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. That is a direct wealth transfer from the rich to the poor. Now, don't get weirded out all political on me, like I didn't get my notes from Bernie, okay, right? It's just, but if we really think about our spiritual condition, we think about ourselves as spiritual debtors, that's what sin does, as we think about ourselves as spiritually in need, then how God responded 
was so amazingly gracious to take his perfection, his righteousness, his life, transferred over. It's on your account now. So that we could have life and have life abundant. So when Jesus invests in something, there's always an amazing return. And we know that because uh, the cross happened over 2,000 years ago. And for the last 2,000 years, all we've watched in an imperfect and hostile world is generations after generations, nation after nation, people group after people group, have people that meet, love, and serve Jesus because of what he did on the cross. And so Jesus didn't go to the cross hoping it would work out. Jesus went to the cross knowingly investing in an eternal heritage. And so if you're here today, it's because saints before you were purchased by Jesus, loved Jesus, served Jesus, gave to the the church, gave to the needs of the community around them in such a way, uh, shared the truth of the gospel in such a way that a legacy was passed on. If you're known and loved and served by uh, Jesus, it's because he's purchased you by what he's done on the cross. All the riches of heaven, he emptied himself to the point of poverty for a purpose so that we who are spiritually poor might be blessed and so that we could be a blessing to others. Hold on to that. Hold on to that as we continue this text, as we even look into next week on chapter nine when it gets into more specifics. If you miss that, it just becomes religion where you're like, oh, I feel bad because I didn't give enough. Or, oh, yep, it's those two weeks he's going to talk about giving. So at least the sun's out. Maybe I'll go camping next week, right? Number two, desire drives discipline, but discipline can foster desire. Desire drives discipline, but discipline can foster desire. Okay, this isn't an inspirational poster I got from a high school guidance counselor. Okay, this is verse 10. In this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do the work, but also to desire to do it. Hold on to that. He said, Jesus loves us with a costly grace, costly death on the cross. We have great life from him. And so we have a life that is driven by desire, but it's not one that is without discipline. And so how these two interact is so important because it says in verse 10, right, that they were giving and then they desired to give. And that is like so, again, counterintuitive for us because we're like, no, 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 I just do what I want. I give where I want. I spend where I want. Time, talent, all of those things. You know, you know, I don't want to, why would I, I don't want to give to things I don't want to give to. And so here's what I want you to hold on to because it is counterintuitive because we, we always want to be guided by our hearts and emotions. We don't consider how could I guide my heart and emotions. We're ruled by heart and emotions. We don't usually think, how do, I, how do I get guided or how do I guide my hearts and emotions? Jesus in Matthew 6, 21 is just clear. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so two competing truths are true at the same time. And this is hard for us because we're very black and white people. Number one is this, our hearts direct our treasure. I give, I do, I spend what I want. That's true. And that's okay. It's okay to have your desires, um, you know, guide your investment, how you spend, okay. But the other is also true. Our treasure directs our heart's affections. And we know this is, True, this is, it's harder for us, but when you begin to invest time, invest talent, invest, yes, treasure, your financial resources, you just care more about something, okay? There's a lot of great churches in our county, in our state, in our region, and I'll just tell you, I don't care about them as much as I care about this church. It doesn't mean that I want to see them flourish. Absolutely. I don't mourn, we mourn when they close, all those things. But this is where I've invested my, my, my time, my talent, even financially. And so I, I've demonstrated it, and we, we show what we care about, right? You, you, you know, you're helping out with Little League. Like, you care a lot more about how Little League's going when you're the one that's mowing the grass and putting the lines out, right? Um, I'll put it this way. When you're younger, and you see the Dow Jones Industrial Average go up and down, and your parents grimace, you know, you're like, whatever and then you get a 401k. Or maybe you've invested in, you know, Dogecoin or whatever, right? Oh, you care a lot more about how GameStop did if you had GameStop stock, right? You care. 
about what you've invested in. So we invest what we care about, that's true. But you want to start caring about something? Start investing. Start serving. Start giving. Start praying. Start spending time in relationship with people and places. Our hearts direct our treasures, but our treasure can and does direct our hearts. God has invested in us through new life so that it can direct our desires for his kingdom purpose. And so um, when he's invested in us, I don't want us to just live in these ditches of over-spiritualizing that, you know, hey, you know, God's, God saved me. I, you know, all my eternity is paid for. It doesn't matter what happens here on earth. Like, no, how we spend our time matters. How we spend our money matters. How God's provided for you, even like right now and today, matters. But let's also not over-materialize and just be like, well, spiritual things don't actually matter. It's just matter, you know, clothes, cars, food, whatever, status. No, these, these two things need to play together. And, and, and we're like, oh no, I don't, I don't want my religion, or rather I don't want the gospel, I don't want what's true about God to change how I spend my money and time. Well, let's just be really clear. Look at the teachings in the New Testament. You know, yeah, from Paul, but just specifically Jesus. And Jesus is incredibly comfortable about tying what is true about God what's true about our identity in Christ and how that transitions to what we do with our money. As much as with our parenting, and our marriages, and our sexuality, and how we engage in um, the communities around us, how we engage in politics, all of those things. Every aspect of our lives follows under the kingship of Jesus. So nothing that we have and nothing that we are is off limits from him. And so... The Corinthian Christians, they've been told about the need. They've been given this example of how Macedonians did it to imitate. Uh, and then they said, you know, they, they, they want to do it. We want to serve. We want to give. And so he's coaching them to remind them of what they've already resolved to do. And so when I want you to know that when you invest back into the kingdom of God, you never have to worry about a market crash. Right? Because he's the one that provides everything. And so for this Corinthian church, this gets us to our, our third principle here. They've been equipped to give. Every one of us, in some way, shape, or form, has been equipped to give. And Paul gets so specific here, and I love this. What he's not specific about is how much the Macedonians gave. Maybe the number wouldn't be impressive. He just says they gave more than they had the ability to. Paul just gets simple. He goes, hey, no one is asking you to do that. He says, we're only reminding you to give first what you desired to give and second what you're able to give. And so he, he's clear enough to say, you know, you can't give what you don't have. You can't give what you don't first possess. And so he goes further to say, hey, I, I want to be really clear. I'm not asking you to shift the burden from them, these, these kind of Judean Christians in poverty, so, so they're doing terrible. I'm not asking you to do terrible and them to do great. In fact, we're going to get to this in a minute. He's not even asking them to be equal or identical. This isn't like this socialist manifesto here, okay? No, he's, he's saying, you have an abundance, Corinthians. You have the ability to give. You have been equipped by God to give. The amount you give is not as important as the heart behind it. What has changed for the Corinthians wasn't their bank account. The reason clearly that they weren't giving to what they said they were going to do wasn't because they lost their job or things had changed economically. There's, their heart's affections had waned. He's just reminding them back of what's true about how we give. And so he wants their discipline and their follow-through not to be shamed to give, but to give what they already desire. All right, and he said there's a reason for this, number four. Affluence can be fluid. Affluence can be fluid. Like for this point, the Corinthians, like they're doing well. The Judeans are not doing well. And Paul here in these verses says, I do not mean for you others to be eased and you burdened. Okay, your abundance, verse 14, at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need. That there may be fairness. He's saying, hey, can we just recognize that the world economy is pretty fluid. Sometimes you're crushing it. Sometimes you're getting crushed. 
He's saying, why don't you, while you're doing well, demonstrate open hands with what God's given you to steward so that you can be a blessing to others and also recognize that just like we're all spiritual debtors, all of us are dependent on one another. And he's like, Corinthians, there's going to be a point where you're in need. There's going to be a point where you guys are the ones that need to be served. Man, this ebbs and flows in our, in our friendships. This ebbs and flows in, in our relationships in different times, right? Like sometimes you're the one bringing a meal because somebody else just had a baby. And sometimes you're the one that just had the baby and like ha- haven't like left the house or taken a shower in a week. Right? Sometimes you're the one that, that like just got a bonus or you just got a, you know, a stimulus check because that's a thing now, right? You know, um, and, and you're like, hey, we can, we can be generous in these ways. And sometimes you're the one who lost the job. Sometimes you're the one who's not going to make rent this month. And so he's saying, this is how God's economy works. We care for one another. We love one another. And he quotes this thing in Exodus um, where he's talking about when they used to gather manna uh, in the ground that like God's people were out in the wilderness and God was providing for them on the daily. And what's amazing about God's provision of manna is God didn't just like zap manna into their tent. Right? There wasn't like Amazon Prime manna. It was like, no, you actually had to like leave your house and go get the manna. And, he said, and so what was happening is there's all this manna out there and, and there's, God's given enough, in fact, uh, more than what is sufficient. And as he gives it out, people are going out and they're gathering and some people are like, I'm pretty good at gathering. We could probably gather two days worth. I gather three days worth. And they're, they're, they're gathering up and other people weren't as good at gathering. And what was happening is at the end of the day, it said, God, if you read this story back in Exodus, I don't have time for it today, but he said what was amazing is at the end of the day, those who, who didn't gather as much were sufficient. Like God made it sufficient for them. And those who gathered in, in abundance, not to bless others or even just to enjoy, but to like, you know, have another day's security and start to hoard, man, their stuff spoiled. They never, they, they never like achieved the, the state of like, okay, I've got so much, I don't have to rely on God anymore. Proverbs 31, give me neither poverty nor riches. Poverty so that I don't steal and defame the glory of God and riches so that I don't claim so much that that I don't need God. It's that place of reliance and rejoicing in how God has provided for you. And so as he talks about even uh, uh, fairness or or equity, um, he's not even talking uh, about that which is, is identical but he's talking about how does, how do the people of God make sure that nobody is in the place of desperation materially? Uh, the great reformer John Calvin says it this way. I think it's an important quote on this topic. He says, I acknowledge indeed that we are not bound to such an equality as would make it wrong for the rich to live more elegantly than the poor. Look at the Bible. There's always rich and poor, okay? But there must be such an equality that nobody starves and nobody hoards his abundance at another's expense. See, it's not about like equally assured misery. But it's about how have you been blessed and how can you, yes, enjoy what God has given you and be a blessing to those who are truly in desperate spots. You can go on about this, but we've got a few more verses and we need to close. Verses 8. Uh, 16 through 24, 16 24. But thanks be to God who put in the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he was going to you out of his own accord. With him we're sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. And not only that, but he's been appointed by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace. He's talking about that collection that's being ministered by us. For the glory of the Lord himself and to show our goodwill. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And with them we are sending our brother whom we often tested and found earnest in many matters, who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence or zeal for you as a church. 23, as for Titus, he's my partner, fellow worker for your benefit. As for our brothers, they are messengers of the churches to the glory of Christ. Um, So give proof before the churches of your love, of our boasting about you to these men. So we see that we have generosity in poverty. Jesus shows us generosity in prosperity. And we can see that we 
are generous in provision. All that's happening here is Paul's writing to his church in Corinth and he's saying, be part of the community of churches in your region and beyond. Be a blessing to them. And oh, by the way, don't forget you're being blessed too. He says this, I mean, the Corinthian church isn't just being so, hey, you guys, you're really wealthy, you're provided for, you need to help the poor people. Um, because we think somehow that if we give, we get less. And I know this is cliche. I've experienced in my own life, though, o- over the last 15 years, because it's been about 15 years now that my wife and I have been faithful, if you will, in this area of our life to, to be financially generous in, in our giving to the church and, and, and beyond. You cannot outgive God. He's given you everything. He has more abundance than you could ever imagine. And so as the Corinthian church is being encouraged to let their discipline and desire work towards giving, he says, yeah, you guys are a blessed church. You're a loved church. He said, I'm sending you guys a squad. Titus, he loves you as a church more than I do. We're sending this guy who, we're not going to tell you his name, but he's famous among all the Christians for his preaching of the gospel. We do a whole other thing on preachers being famous at another time, but it's just, it's amazing. He's saying he's recognizing the guy's gifted and he's been a blessing to the church. He says, and by the way, we're also sending you an experienced leader who's been tested, who also has great zeal for you. It's like you're getting like a great priestly guy, a great like preacher, teacher, and like a great administrative guy. Church, you're gonna be blessed. So you can be a blessing to others. I, I, I believe that we're a blessed church, not because I'm famous among the churches. Okay, we're a blessed church. For since June of last year, we've been blessed to gather in this space. I've got friends, and we have friends and connections at another church in town where they've been homeless over this past year, um, and meeting in different churches in the evening. We've hosted them and, and other places, and it, it has not been as easy for them. And their pastors leaving town. And this is their last Sunday as a church gathering. And we, we mourn for that. We grieve for that because that's our brothers and sisters in Christ who, some of which were here at First Baptist and grieved the end of that and others have been with us in the past. And, and, and like, our hearts grieve. But we've been blessed as a church to be a blessing. To be a blessing, yes, here in the community of faith, but yes, to the community of Marysville and beyond and to the other churches. And so as we think about this as a church, we want to always strive for what is honorable in the sight of the Lord, it says here, honorable in the sight of man as well. And so we've tangibly said, what does this look like here at Mercy Fellowship? And when we begin the year, we kind of laid out a, a vision statement and kind of a dream for the next 10 years. And, and, and that's online. We'll post that again this week as well. But, but in that, we talked about what we want our church culture to look like in generosity. And we said this. We said, we have a culture which tangibly displays joyful generosity wise stewardship, relational warmth, and creative beauty in our fellowship to our community and to our world. We said we're a blessing to our gospel partnerships with other churches, networks, and ministries who effectively embrace the Great Commission and embody the Great Commandment. And we said that we are deeply rooted in the enduring hope we have in, in Christ through all chapters of life, looking beyond our and our immediate circumstances, building a gospel legacy and a story where we know Jesus wins. So that's the church we want to be in 10 years. We said as we are walking in that direction, we said we want our financial giving to sustain the current mission, to support other ministries, and to save for future dreams. And then when we talked about this year, we said we've got three things that we're just praying for all year long in 2021. Number one, that we'd remain steadfast. We said that that means that we would be deeply rooted in the truth and beauty of the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ, that while the entire world just seems to be like lemmings running off a cliff towards less flourishing, that we're just going to remain steadfast, focusing on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, turning our eyes to him, and upholding the truth of the gospel, no matter where the world's going on, whatever the issue may be. We said as well that we want to remain equipped, that we'd have the time, talent, and treasure to continue the mission. And, and we joked about this a couple times. Like, we didn't know that meant that, like, we were, that the actual equipment would walk off with, with some, you know, with the break-ins, right? But God has and is providing for us as a church. 
And part of how he does that is how he's provided for and equipped you and equipped me and equipped us to be cheerful, regular, sacrificial givers to the church and beyond. He said what undergirds all of this is this last one, that we would remain joyful. Every week is another opportunity for division, is another opportunity to be discouraged, is another opportunity for acrimony. But when we're unified in Christ, attitudes that are humble, gentleness, celebration, that health relationally and dare I say physically, Lord willing, would, would mark us as a church. But regardless of our circumstances, that we would remain joyful as we continue the mission and vision of our church. And so I want you to ask yourself, what's, what's next for you? It's a time for you to start giving by serving. Mercy kids, we got ladies having babies and you know, we don't want them to have to serve for a while because they're gonna be serving 24 seven little people. We need three to five more people for Mercy Kids in this next season. As we look to fall, we hope to open another class. And so we're always gonna need more people serving Mercy Kids. We wanna serve in tech, we always need more help in tech. You're like, I don't, I don't, I'm not good with kids, I'm not good with technology, can you brew coffee? Well, you might not be good at that, we can make you good at that. Can you open a door and smile, master or unmask, whatever. We need help in hospitality. You need to give your time relationally one another. Maybe, maybe it's to actually start giving financially. Maybe you've never trusted God with your finances or you haven't thought that that's part of discipleship. I encourage you, like, you know, have a conversation with your spouse if you're married on what that looks like or, or, or look at your own budget and finances and think to yourself, what's cheerful, what's regular, what's sacrificial look like for us as a family or as an individual? Maybe you've already been giving, but, but it's, it's time to say, hey, you know what? No, we're going to trust God more with our finances. Maybe we're going to take that step and tithe. Maybe we're going to bless the church, but we're also going to bless some places outside the church as well. Maybe it's just to get connected, to give friendship or receive friendship by being part of a small group. Maybe this is your day. Say, I've been holding on to my life as my own. It's actually, I need to just give my life to the Lord who's given me all things. And this is your day where you trust Jesus for the first time. I mean, if you, that'd be amazing. Maybe the miracle of the Holy Spirit. You tell everybody for the rest of your life, yeah, I got saved in a sermon about giving, <laughs> about finances and money. But I realized that Jesus was greater than everything this world has to offer. So you give your life as a living sacrifice to him, knowing that you're actually gonna receive more joy than you could ever imagine. Yes, it'll be difficult. Maybe it's your time to get baptized to pledge allegiance to Jesus as your Savior and as your King. So as we close, just we praise God, the Father, who's generous and given us all things. We ask that the Holy Spirit uh, give us the courage to be generous. We thank Jesus, who gave so generously and endured poverty all the way to the cross so that we could experience abundant life with him when we simply trust Jesus. Let's pray.